Welcome to episode one of Unconventional Health. I am your host Solstice and I want to introduce you to a radical discovery that puts everything you think you know about health on its head. This discovery is over 40 years old or more accurately this rediscovery is over 40 years old because it is really as old as our own bodies themselves are and it is built within our DNA. We are just too busy looking out into the world for our cures to notice the intelligent design of these wonderful biological vessels and how we, the drivers, are constantly signaling them to adapt, creating what we currently call disease. Well, it turns out what we call disease is actually how our bodies heal and restore themselves. To explain how this is so, I'm going to paint a bit of a picture, so I want you to imagine the following scenario. A zebra is grazing on some grass in the savannah when suddenly it hears a noise. Looking around, it spots a lion who has managed to sneak up on it in a nearby bush. The lion leaps into action, closing the distance between it and its next meal. The zebra suddenly sees a sure death coming at it. Its immediate, automatic biological impulse is to flee. In this moment, the zebra's body unleashes a powerful reaction that allows the zebra access to powers that would in other less dangerous situations not be available to it. And it is this reaction that we are going to look further into to help us explain the development of disease. So the zebra in this moment shifts into a heightened sympathicotonic state. This is the fight or flight branch of the autonomic nervous system. This is where these extra powers and energy is made available in order f to give the zebra the best chance of survival. But where exactly do these powers come from? Well, along with the flood of catecholamines that mobilize muscle tissue and increase the heart rate, there is also a sudden hyperfunctioning of the alveoli in the lungs. This allows for more oxygen exchange to take place, giving the zebra a boost to allow it to run at a greater capacity and for a longer period of time. After running for a few minutes in this hypersympathicotonic state, a decision will be naturally made. The zebra will either escape and live or it will be caught and die. If it manages to escape, it will, once it senses that it is safe again, immediately shut off this hyperfunctioning and for a few minutes will move to the vagotonic state. This is the parasympathetic branch of the autonomic nervous system, where its whole organism will regain its equilibrium and return to grazing as if nothing happened with no ill effects to its body. Now let's look at this same reaction but in a human situation. Let's say you are at your doctor's office and they deliver some devastating and shocking news. You have an aggressive form of cancer growing inside your body. The moment you receive this news because of your preconceived ideas about what this diagnosis means for you, you interpret it in the exact same way that the zebra interpreted the oncoming lion, as a death fright. This deadly and aggressive cancer is like a predator that you want to run away from, except in this situation it is not possible, going against that biological impulse. This means that that initial biological reaction, the death fright, now remains perpetually active because there is no immediate solution at hand. You can't sleep your appetite is gone, your hands and feet are cold. That sense of dread remains with you day and night. With the zebra, the death fright sympathetic reaction would last for no more than a few minutes. But in us humans, it can drag out for weeks or even months at a time. And this comes with physical consequences. 
With this particular reaction, the alveoli in the lungs are impacted. Because they are hyperfunctional for so long here, they actually begin to replicate, eventually forming tumours. If this goes on for a few months, and then you return to your doctor for a checkup to see how that initial cancer is progressing or regressing, now they would pick up the alveoli masses and conclude that the initial cancer has spread, never aware that it was their own diagnosis, their words of death that triggered this new development. In cases like these, it is unlikely that the patient will recover as more and more fear is piled up into their psyche, causing further intensification of the sympathicotonic state. But let's take a very extraordinary case and say that the patient gets some good news. There is no longer any need to worry, the doctor declares. The patient takes the doctor's word and feels that he has successfully evaded the deadly predator. Finally, relief. He can breathe easy again all is well in his world. His body moves into a prolonged vagotonic state. This is the parasympathetic branch, but because he has spent so much time in the sympathicotonic state, a significant amount of tissue adaptation took place in an attempt to assist him. This tissue now needs to be restored back to normal. So the body will remain in the vagotonic state and the surplus alveoli cells will be broken down by TB bacteria. These decomposed cells then need to be expelled from the lungs and we do this through coughing them up. This typically warrants another trip to the doctor who will conclude that the patient now has a lung infection or tuberculosis, depending on the geographic location of the patient. The cellular breakdown is very energy intensive and uses up a lot of protein, which is why it used to be known as consumption in the 20th and 19th century. While back in the day it was a rarer thing to be given a deadly diagnosis by your doctor, it was very common to experience a death fright conflict shock due to wars, famines, political threats and generally feeling unsafe in the world. In our modern day, this condition is treated with antibiotics which have the effect of stopping the vagotonic state because the TB bacteria are killed and they can no longer break down the tumours. This stops the unpleasant symptoms, but what the body does instead is it encapsulates any remaining tumours and they will remain in his body for the rest of his life. The TB bacteria, thought to be dangerous and pathogenic, are actually microsurgeons. Their job in our bodies and all throughout nature is to break down dead matter so that the energy and materials can be released and recycled. If the restoration is allowed to take place, the surplus tissue is removed and the bacteria die back down where they will remain inactive or dormant until they are needed again. They do not invade other parts of the body. Now this brief example is one of many hundreds of different conflicts that we can experience and which we share with the animal kingdom. With this new understanding, we can see that cancer and other diseases are not caused by smoking, toxins, mold, genes, pathogens or foods, nor that they are something that we have to fight against and try to eradicate, but rather that they are due to biological conflict shocks that persist for long periods of time, programs initiated within the body for a specific purpose that can be turned on and off. There are many doctors now talking about the effects of chronic stress on our bodies and it is commonly known that up to 90% of doctors visits are due to stress related symptoms. But what we are still missing is what exactly links these two together. Well this is what Dr. R.G. Harmer discovered. These biological laws are as ancient as our bodies we have just been diabolically misled. 
Dr. Harmer mapped out a complete and comprehensive system that allows us to understand the exact nature of every so-called disease that is not directly caused by injury, poisoning, or malnutrition. His discoveries, as miraculous as they are, were not well received by the medical cartel. And this is precisely because they completely contradict our current theories and methods of disease management. They basically make it uncomfortably obvious that what we are currently doing is not only completely wrong, it is barbaric. Not at all much better than bloodletting or mercury sipping. Of course, it simply could not become public knowledge. Imagine the implications. Practically 90% of modern medicine would become obsolete. And so, Dr. Harmer's work was heavily suppressed. Dr. Harmer himself was ridiculed, threatened, imprisoned and forced into exile where he eventually passed away. Does this pattern sound familiar? If it does, congratulations, you are paying attention to the world. Luckily for us, we live in an age where information can be shared far and wide without permission from our gatekeepers. Well, for now anyway. And so it is really up to us what kind of future we create through the narrative we hold about ourselves and our power. Either weak and dependent on pharma, or sovereign and self-healing. But I also urge you not to simply take what I am telling you today as the truth. Learn about the five biological laws and observe their accuracy in your own life and the lives of your family and friends. This can be done quite easily and at little cost to yourself, besides your time and a bit of focus. The payoff that you will receive is that you will naturally become the authority over your own body and its well-being. You will no longer need to abnegate this responsibility to an outside authority whose own interests are questionable. This is not to say that doctors are all bad. Most have good intentions, I'm sure. Only they are completely blinded by their own ignorance. So what exactly are the five biological laws? The first biological law states that all disease not directly caused by injury, poison or extreme malnutrition originate from a serious, unexpected, dramatic and isolating conflict shock that at the time cannot be overcome. There is no solution at hand. This conflict shock registers on three levels, the psyche, the brain and the organ. On the psyche level, there will be a compulsive obsessing over the problem. As you go through your day-to-day routine, this insurmountable problem constantly sits at the back of your mind as your mind mulls over it in an attempt to find a solution or way out. On the brain level, there will be a concentric ring-like formation on a particular relay. This looks like the ripples that emanate after you drop a pebble into a pond and in the brain this is sort of what happens. The conflict shock is like the metaphorical pebble that disrupts the smooth calm pond's surface. It is a sudden influx of energy in a particular relay of the brain that disrupts or short circuits the neurons. This then signals to a specific organ or tissue to undergo an adaptation. And this adaptation is an attempt to help the individual out of their predicament that they have perceived as a threat to their or their offspring's survival. Which organ will be affected depends on how the problem is interpreted or perceived. And this is not a process that we consciously undertake. It is determined by our conditioning or programming. It is basically our philosophy of life, how we interpret what happens to us. As the saying goes, it is not what happens to us that is important, but how we perceive what happens to us. So it really is impossible to predict how someone will react to a shocking life event. A group of people may go through the exact same shocking experience, like a tsunami or a sudden layoff, and yet develop completely different bodily symptoms, because their psyche interpreted the event in different ways. Now, not all dramatic life events or negative experiences necessarily produce a conflict shock. 
the three criteria must be present and that is that it catches you off guard at something that you cannot expect. It is isolating, meaning you have to carry the burden. It is not possible to offload any of it onto someone else. And it overwhelms or surpasses your ability to deal with it. It leaves you with your hands tied. Only then will your psyche shift this burden to the body. How severe the changes will be depends on the intensity of the conflict shock and how long it lasts. This is referred to as the conflict mass. And that brings us to the second law, the law of the two phases. With this law, not only can we see that all disease is meaningful, but also that they follow a very predictable path. It states that all diseases run in two phases, provided that there is a conflict resolution, called the conflict active phase and the resolution phase, also known as sympathicotonia and vagotonia, or the sympathetic state and the parasympathetic state. During normal functioning, there is a balance between these two states. During the day, you are naturally sympathicotonic in order for you to be aroused enough to wake up and then go and do all of your daily activities. At around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, your body is automatically shifted to vagotonia in order for you to wind down and prepare for sleep. This is what we know as a state of health. The moment that you experience a conflict shock, so you come up against something that exceeds your ability to handle, Suddenly your normal functioning is interrupted. Your whole being, that is your psyche, your brain and your body are shifted into a heightened and prolonged state of sympathicotonia. This is the first phase. You are now conflict active and changes are taking place on the organ level. Instead of alternating between the sympathetic and parasympathetic state, you remain perpetually sympathetic all day and night. You will still be able to fall asleep and get a few hours of rest so that your body does not simply perish but it will be a less restful sleep and you'll tend to wake up around 3 to 5 o'clock in the morning and find it almost impossible to fall back to sleep. Your brain does not want you to sleep any longer. It is telling you, get up and go sort out this problem that is a threat to our survival. Your hands and feet may also be cold as your blood vessels constrict, reducing blood flow to your extremities. Your appetite will be low as food and digestion become less of a priority. And your mind will be fixated on the problem, going in endless circles trying to figure out a solution. In this state, it is quite obvious even to others that you are stressed out. But other than this general feeling of unease, there will be no physical symptoms to tip you off that something is happening within your body. If you were to remain in this state for months at a time, however, you will start looking unhealthy and thin because it is very taxing on the body to expend so much energy and not have any time to recuperate it. In nature, this is seldom a problem because conflicts are settled very quickly through natural forces, but because of our ability to recall and mentally relive conflicts, as well as keep them active through artificial means, this can become an issue for us humans. This phenomenon is particularly evident in cancer patients. It is rarely ever the cancer itself that is fatal. Rather, it is the mixture of perpetual sympathicotonia and highly toxic treatments that expend so much energy that the patient often dies of cachexia. The fear and panic surrounding a cancer patient is so antagonistic to healing, it is little wonder that they have such little chance of survival. The typically prescribed treatment for cancer itself is also highly sympathicotonic, meaning it stimulates the sympathetic nervous system, creating a cycle that the patient can hardly escape from. So what happens when or if a resolution does come? 
This brings us to phase two, the restoration phase. As soon as our conflict has been put to bed, we have found a way out or around our problem, the danger has passed, the body, brain and the psyche immediately shift into a heightened and prolonged vagotonia. This is the parasympathetic branch of the nervous system or more commonly known as the rest, digest and heal state. This will last about as long as the conflict active phase, but it is split into two different stages, stage A and stage B. The split is a very critical event that occurs right in between these two stages called the epicrisis or the healing crisis. The first stage is marked by significant fatigue as the body now requires extra rest to compensate for the long period of unrest. It may be harder to fall asleep as there may be uncomfortable bodily sensations like soreness, pressure and heat. But there will be a noticeable improvement in overall sleep, especially after 3 o'clock in the morning. The stage is also accompanied by warm hands and feet as blood vessels now dilate and an increase in appetite which may contribute to a bit of weight gain. Restoration of tissue is now taking place in the body and this is accompanied by extra fluid or an edema as all healing happens in a fluid environment. On the brain level, there is also a restoration taking place in the area that the short-circuiting happened during the conflict shock. These neurons also need to be repaired and restored, and this is done with the help of glial cells. An edema or a pocket of fluid will also accumulate to protect the area. This can sometimes be felt as a headache or migraine. Conventional medicine often diagnoses this phenomenon as a brain tumour, but we can see through the lens of the five biological laws that this is really how the brain repairs itself. The only real danger here is if the edema becomes too large, which in most cases is caused by the panic and fear associated with a brain tumour diagnosis. While all these symptoms may appear worrying or like something is going wrong, in reality it is how the body sets things right. It is a healing and reparation taking place. 80 to 90% of all diseases are diagnosed in this phase because the conflict active phase does not usually come with any physically worrying symptoms. It is so often overlooked or missed altogether. But without understanding both phases and without observing how one leads to the other, there is no possibility of sound or effective treatment since half the picture is missing. Yet, this is how conventional and even most natural or alternative medicine operates. Now, once stage A comes to a completion, something interesting happens. The body is suddenly shifted back into the sympathetic state. This is called the epicrisis and it is the most dangerous part of the restoration phase and also the most critical. The purpose of the sudden surge back into sympathicotonia is to squeeze out the edema or fluid that accumulated during stage A, both in the body and in the brain. And it is here that we experience acute conditions such as heart attacks, seizures, strokes, colic, vomiting and absences. The severity of which depend on how long and how intense the conflict active phase was. It is also here that modern medicine could be of great help and even life-saving if they really understood what was taking place. As the restoration phase follows a very predictable path, you can know that someone will have a heart attack weeks in advance, for example. Once the epicrisis has passed, we enter phase B, where scar tissue is laid down and the body slowly returns to a state of balance. The turning point has been passed and you begin to feel well again. So how is a heart attack predictable and what do you mean it happens from the brain? Let's run through an example. 
A hypothetical man, let's call him Steve, one day discovers his wife in bed with another man, an intruder in his territory. He's completely blindsided, not realising that there were any troubles in his marriage. He kicks the man out, but is then told by his wife that she wants a divorce and that he has to leave the family home. This territorial loss is unexpected, isolating, and he has no solution for it. He admits temporary defeat, packs his things, and goes somewhere else to stay. But he remains restless, going over the situation in his mind. His hands and feet are cold, and he wakes in the early hours of the morning. This is perpetuated every time he drives past his house and sees another man's car parked in his space. In nature, he would be driven to fight his competitor in an attempt to win back his territory. From the moment he experienced the conflict shock, a concentric ring formation appeared in the coronary artery relay in his cerebral cortex, and the lining of his coronary arteries begin to ulcerate in order to widen them, which allows for more blood volume to be pumped through, providing increased vigour and strength to fight off this perceived intruder. This ulceration can sometimes be felt as angina, but Steve puts it down to stress and ignores it. For six months, this continues until finally he realises that the marriage really is over and acceptance begins to settle in. He finds his own permanent place to live, thus establishing his new territory. At the moment of his realisation, he finally feels a sense of peace again, and with this, unbeknown to him, he enters the restoration phase. The following morning, he awakens feeling very tired and run down. All his previous restless energy all but gone. Restoration in both the brain and the body must now take place. For a few months, he will remain in the first half of the restoration phase. Then suddenly, likely in the very early hours of the morning, he will experience the epicrisis. And this comes in the form of a heart attack for this particular conflict. During an epicrisis, all the accumulated fluid that was necessary during the first part of the healing is now squeezed out. But because the brain edema that forms with the coronary artery program is so close to the heart rhythm control center, when this edema is squeezed out, it impedes on the rhythm control center and causes an interruption of signals that are sent down to the heart. This means that until the epicrisis has passed, very little to no signals reach the heart and it temporarily stops. How long this will be and how little signals that reach the heart depend on how long and intense the territorial loss conflict lasted. A territorial loss conflict that lasts longer than nine months continuously will be fatal. So luckily Steve managed to resolve his conflict in six months so his heart attack will be noticeable but survivable. If he gets through the epicrisis without activating a new conflict due to the heart attack itself he will then enter the second part of the restoration phase where the lining of the arteries are fully restored with the help of cholesterol. He then returns to a state of homeostasis or balance. Steve finally feels like Steve again. So I would like to point out that this example goes through one of two different types of heart attacks that we can experience. The other being a type of self-devaluation that impacts the myocardium or the actual heart muscles rather than the coronary arteries. But both are controlled via the brain and have nothing to do with blocked arteries or high cholesterol. As already shown through numerous clinical studies, cholesterol-lowering meds really have no significant effect on our chances of suffering a heart attack. And with this new understanding, we can see that it is rather pointless. Other medications like cortisone, aspirin and other steroids work by having a sympathicotonic effect on the body. This means that they 
temporarily dampen or diminish the restoration phase so that the healing symptoms become less severe and you get a bit of relief. With a high enough dose, however, these types of sympathicotonic stimulating drugs can interrupt the restoration phase and put the body back into the conflict active phase. Because the restoration phase cannot be bypassed entirely, the consequences of this are potentially longer or more intense restoration symptoms. High doses of vitamin C have a similar effect, and caffeine is also a potent sympathicotonic agent. Medication very rarely have a vagotonic effect, but an example would be tranquilizers. Magnesium and hot saunas are also vagotonic. Now, we don't want to completely discredit all medicine. In some cases, they can be very helpful or even life-saving, if given at the right time and the right quantity. But we do need to move away from this idea that all symptoms need to be treated or eradicated with pills and treatments. It is possible for us to make our own decisions about what will be beneficial to take and what kind of symptoms we are willing to endure knowing what they really mean. This also does not mean that we should do nothing. Sometimes we do need to utilise medicine or go to emergency care if the healing phase is too intense for the body to handle. But it does mean that we can learn to work with our bodies in a way that will have the most desirable outcome. And we can do so while trusting our body's innate intelligence. Empowering yourself with this information is in fact the opposite of doing nothing. Doing nothing would be waiting until you become sick, taking yourself to the doctor and allowing yourself to be the passive patient who takes whatever medication is prescribed to them, hoping that it will fix you while you remain completely oblivious to what your body is doing or what the medication is doing to your body. Now, this might sound like that there is always a definite end to all diseases. When you go through the entirety of the restoration phase, you should get better and stay better, right? But what about chronic conditions? Well, there are a few different ways that a condition can become chronic, but it always involves getting stuck in a vicious and self-perpetuating cycle between the two phases. Often this is due to what are called tracks. These are small reminders that the psyche has laid down as an association with the original conflict. Warning signals, so to speak, that cause you to constantly re-experience the conflict in your mind. Tracks can be particular foods that you were eating when you experienced the conflict shock, smells, sounds, or even a particular time of the year. So now we have arrived at the third biological law. This one can seem quite complex if you are not familiar with certain terminology, but it is important to know, and the more you understand, the more power you have to make the best choices in whatever circumstances you may find yourself. The more you understand the five biological laws, the less fear you have of disease. So, at around day 13 of our conception, there are three distinct types of cells called germ layers that go on to build the entirety of our bodies. So the entirety of our bodies are made up of these three distinct embryonic germ layers. Each layer has its own characteristics and known behaviours during the two phases of all biological programs. They respond to specific conflicts and will undergo changes that are specific to them. The first and oldest tissue type is the endoderm. This layer makes up the tissue that is responsible for very basic life functions, usually in the terms of absorption and secretion of vital substances, such as the alveoli in the lungs, the prostate, intestines, liver, thyroid gland, and the kidney-collecting tubules. All of these organs or tissues respond to conflicts concerning basic survival needs. Death, fright, starvation, abandonment, not being able to digest, absorb or get rid of morsels and being unable to reproduce. 
In the wild, this involves food, mating and danger, but for humans it also involves money, property and jobs. During conflict activity, there will be cell proliferation within the affected organ with the purpose of increasing absorption or secretion. Although there will rarely be physical symptoms of this cell proliferation, if the conflict lasts long enough, um, there will be tumour growth that may be picked up as malignant, depending on how fast the cells are replicating. Once the conflict is resolved and the healing phase is entered, the cells are broken down by mycobacteria and fungi, usually also accompanied by night sweats. If the required microbes are absent, the extra cells will remain and are encapsulated. The endoderm is controlled entirely by the brainstem. The next germ layer is called the mesoderm and it consists of the old mesoderm and the new mesoderm. The old mesoderm serves the function of protecting and nourishing. The corium skin, the mammary glands, pericardium and the peritoneal are all composed of old mesodermal tissue. During the conflict active phase, this layer responds in the same manner as the endoderm with cell proliferation. These extra cells provide extra protection against an attack and for the mammary glands, extra nourishment for a loved one in danger. In the healing phase, these surplus cells are broken down by various bacteria. The old mesoderm is controlled from the cerebellum. The new mesodermal tissue is involved with supporting and stabilizing the body and responds to conflicts of a self-devaluative nature, a loss of self-worth or self-esteem. It includes the skeletal muscles, the myocardium of the heart, the bones, the lymphatic system, blood vessels, connective and fatty tissue, and particular parts of the ovaries, testicles, and kidneys. During conflict activity, there is cell removal through necrosis. And once the resolution phase is completed, there is cell addition to reinforce or make that particular tissue stronger than before. The new mesoderm is controlled by the cerebral medulla or the cerebral white matter. This type of program shows its purpose at the end of the healing phase rather than during the conflict active phase and it's comparable to the process of muscle hypertrophy through strength or resistance training. When you go to the gym and lift heavy weights you are sending a signal to your muscles that they are not strong enough. During the workout your muscles actually break down or are in a catabolic state. This equals the conflict active state. Once you go home and rest and that signal is no longer being sent to the muscles, they then enter the healing phase. This is where they are repaired as well as reinforced with more muscle tissue so that they are better able to handle the stressor next time, which in this case is purposeful physical strain through heavy weights. So it is only once that they are able to rest that they become stronger, and the same goes for all new mesodermal tissue. It is stronger at the end of the biological program. A self-devaluation can range from feeling like you performed poorly, not liking the look of a part of your body, to a deep feeling of inadequacy, overwhelm or wrongness. The last and youngest germ layer is the ectoderm and it is concerned with more socially oriented conflicts involving relationships with other people. The cervix, coronary vessels, ducts of the pancreas, liver, thyroid, breasts and gallbladder, the epidermis, the small curvature of the stomach, the rectal mucosa, nasal passages, as well as the upper parts of the esophagus are lined with ectodermal tissue. During conflict activities, these cells ulcerate in order to widen the passageway and allow for more of whatever substance is involved to pass through. There are also a few organs of this germ layer that do not undergo cellular changes, but instead become purposefully hyper or hypofunctional during conflict activity, such as the islet cells of the pancreas. During the healing phase, the ulcerated tissue is replenished, usually accompanied by a cyst. 
Some types of cancers are diagnosed here as the cellular replenishment that takes place within the cyst is mistakenly perceived as uncontrolled cellular growth. The ectodermal layer is controlled by the cerebral cortex or the cerebral grey matter. For all layers apart from the endoderm, which side of the body is affected, the left or the right side, depends on the individual's handedness. Your handedness is determined at the moment of your conception, though many of us have been trained or conditioned to use our right hand as the dominant hand. The best way to determine your biological handedness is through the clap test. You clap your hands but slightly tilted to the side and the hand that naturally lands on top is your biological handedness. When I do the clap test it feels more natural for my right hand to be on top and this means that I am biologically right handed. This means that the left side of my body is linked to my children and my mother and the right side of my body is linked to anyone else whom I consider my equal or above me. For example, my partner, siblings or friends. If I experience a self-devaluation involving my relationship with one of my children, the supportive tissue of my left shoulder will be impacted. This is the reverse for a biologically left-handed person. Knowing the role of handedness can be helpful in pinpointing a particular conflict. The fourth biological law. This is possibly the most interesting of the biological laws, but also the hardest to grasp or accept because it states the exact opposite of what we all have been conditioned to believe since the very beginning of our childhood. The fourth law covers the role of microbes like fungi, bacteria and viruses in the healing or restoration phase. It very clearly states that microbes are not responsible for disease, even infectious ones, but instead play a beneficial role in the breaking down and removal of surplus cells and the restoration of tissue. They are energy recyclers everywhere in nature. Without these microbes, we and all of nature simply would not be. Dr. Harmer found that different types of microbes have certain roles on the different germ layers and are signaled by the brain to carry out their functions. The oldest types such as fungi and mycobacteria begin replicating at the onset of a conflict and multiply in proportion to the conflict mass. Once the conflict is resolved, they are then signaled to break down the now surplus cells. What we currently consider cancerous growths such as colon, lung and breast tumours are removed by these microbes. The process of this breakdown creates mucus and discharge, which while this may seem concerning from the lens of conventional medicine, is actually a beneficial process. These microbes do not invade other parts of the body if left unchecked. They work on the surplus tissue that needs to be removed and once their job is done they die back down and become dormant until they are needed again. A phenomenon that has baffled conventional medicine, which they now term a latent infection, can now be viewed from a new perspective. When someone presents with large quantities of a certain type of bacteria, such as TB, and yet are not displaying the expected symptoms, we can now see that it is because they are conflict active and the bacteria have not yet been signaled to do their job. Rather than zooming in and focusing on the bacterial activity of the individual, we really need to zoom out and explore what that individual is going through in their life. What is creating the unease within their body? Only the individual can say. The new mesoderm as well as the ectoderm utilize other bacteria like streptococcus and staphylococcus to optimize the healing and restoration of tissue. The role or existence of viruses is still questionable as what we currently believe to be viruses or viral particles are more likely to be normal cellular particles undergoing certain adaptations as part of a biological program. 
In the future, it may be determined that viruses and messenger vesicles, such as exosomes, are actually one and the same. If our view of disease is upside down, then we have to re-evaluate the role of these so-called viruses as well. It is important to understand that we as humans are separate and physical bodies, but we are constantly in contact and communicating with each other on a subconscious and microscopic scale. We often talk about bad vibes or bad energy without realizing that it is this innate ability to pick up someone's shift in state. Throughout our evolution, if one person in a tribe was experiencing a conflict shock, it often meant that there was danger to the whole tribe, and we developed this ability to sense that unease within others, which then called for us to become more alert, more suspicious, so that we were better prepared for the danger. This process is heightened in a relationship between a mother and her child. Now whenever there is an outbreak or an epidemic in a certain area or group of people, it is always preceded by a significant event that impacted all of the people involved. A great example is the Spanish flu or the TB outbreak after World War I. It is not hard to imagine the intense widespread panic and stress that would result from such a historical event. Tuberculosis is the restoration phase of a death fright conflict fitting for the end of a world war. It is easier to see then also why some people have more severe versions and other manage to evade the outbreak altogether. It has little to do with a fictional immune system and everything to do with our perception of safety. With the rise in popularity of the gut microbiome and probiotics, we are beginning to see just how integral these microbes are to our health. But how can we really believe that these microbes can be so beneficial in one area of our bodies and yet so detrimental in another? Particularly if we take into account that on average there are just as many, if not more, microbes in our body as there are actual human cells. Is our mighty immune system really keeping them all in check? Or are they all living as part of an ecosystem, each carrying out their individual functions as required? Let's run through another example to highlight how ridiculous our belief about pathogenic microbes are. This is the female version of the Steve story I told you earlier. So one day Alex catches her boyfriend in bed with another woman. She is devastated and completely blindsided. She breaks up with him immediately despite still loving him very much. From that day onwards she remains in a heightened sympathetic state. She can't seem to warm up, doesn't feel like eating, tosses and turns at night thinking about the sudden separation. Now for Steve the breakup was perceived as a territorial loss and affected his coronary arteries. For females, it is perceived as a sexual separation and affects her cervix as well as her coronary veins. Both of these tissues are ectodermal and during conflict activity they ulcerate. As a side note, because Alex is a unique hypothetical individual, it is not telling that all women will experience the situation in the same way. One person may perceive it as a self-devaluation, another as a betrayal, and perhaps another may not even experience a conflict shock, as they kind of weren't really into him anymore anyway. So Alex does not notice anything amiss with her body, though she may miss her period if the conflict is intense enough. But as luck would have it, she is due for a pap smear. So she goes and gets the smear, and to her surprise it comes back as abnormal. The doctor informs her that there were some abnormal changes in the cells that line her cervix. Now this is the ulceration that occurs during the conflict active phase of a sexual separation. Whether HPV is present or not is completely arbitrary. Most likely, this so-called virus is involved with the signaling of cells to undergo the adaptation process. So she arranges for another checkup in a few months' time. 
A few weeks pass and she meets someone new on a dating app. She decides that she really likes him and pursues a relationship with him. A few weeks later, they sleep together for the first time and her sexual separation conflict is put to bed. Immediately, she is shifted to a heightened parasympathetic state. She may also bleed during sex as the cervix begins to heal. Now, those ulcerated cells need to be restored and this happens with small pockets of fluid. If she now goes back to get the follow-up smear, they would conclude that these small pockets are precancerous lesions. As the healing progresses, these lesions are filled with cervical cells that go on to restore the ulcerated lining. But conventional medicine has ruled that these cells are malignant and need to be removed. If Alex is lucky enough and her smear is not due for another few months, the biological program will run its course until eventually her cervical lining is completely restored. At this point, the pap smear would return as normal. Now, did Alex catch the HPV virus from sleeping around? No, of course not. She only managed to resolve her conflict by coming together with a new sexual partner. Was this some kind of miracle healing? Also, no, this is how all of our bodies operate. Okay, let's move on to the fifth and final law. This one is called the quintessence. It is the summary and conclusion that ties all of the laws together and states that nature is purposeful and does not deal with meaningless or malignant processes. We can finally see now that what we previously viewed as flawed dysfunctional diseases are part of a biological system of nature, that they are adaptations that have helped us survive throughout our evolution. As Jung said, in all chaos there is a cosmos, in all disorder a secret order. These biological laws are not a new modality, treatment or cure for disease, but rather they offer a new understanding, a fundamental paradigm shift in thinking and a revolution in medicine. It is not something that you can just try out and see if it works for you. It in itself does not heal you. In fact, it is telling you the opposite. You can only heal yourself. And whether you understand it or not, the five biological laws apply to each one of us at all times, no matter what we think of them. But do not wait until you are seriously ill to learn them. Get a grasp of it now while you are well, because trying to get out of the grips of fear and medical dogma when you are sick is like trying to learn to swim while you are drowning. So, are you ready to take radical responsibility and become the gatekeeper of your own health? Are you ready to join the revolution in medicine? Keep learning until this knowledge becomes second nature to you, and share this episode with your loved ones. Thank you for listening to Unconventional Health, and be well. This audio is for educational purposes only. I am not a medical professional and do not treat, cure, or diagnose medical conditions. Only you can heal yourself. Please use your discernment and seek professional medical help if you have any concerns or symptoms.